Tonight I'd like to continue the discussion <clears throat> of the Buddha's first discourse, setting the wheel of the Dharma in motion. I began this first teaching, as we spoke about last week, by laying out the broad framework of the middle way, <clears throat> that is, avoiding the extremes of self-indulgence on the one hand, sense-indulgence, and self-mortification on the other. But then as the discourse goes on, the Buddha provides an amazing conceptual structure for understanding all that is necessary for liberation. It's quite amazing because he does it like in a page or two of teachings. Everything that we need to understand for awakening. And he said, just as the footprints of all animals can fit within the footprint of an elephant, so too, whatever wholesome states there are, all of them are embraced in the Four Noble Truths. And despite the many differences among the different Buddhist traditions, all are in agreement that these four truths are the foundation of understanding and the foundation of realization. So we'll begin by exploring the meaning and relevance of the first of these truths. And I'll read, I'll read from the discourse. This, O bhikkhus, is the noble truth of dukkha. Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, death is dukkha, sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Association with the unloved or unpleasant condition is dukkha. Separation from the beloved or pleasant condition is dukkha. Not to get what one wants is dukkha. In brief, the five aggregates of attachment are dukkha. So in these few lines where the Buddha explains this first noble truth, where the Buddha points to the experience of dukkha both in the ordinary experiences of our lives, that is birth and sickness and disease and old age and death, and then being with what we don't like, being separated from what we do like. So he talks about this first noble truth in terms of just these mundane aspects of our lives, but then he goes on and he concludes it with a deeper and more comprehensive understanding, and that is the five aggregates of attachment, the five aggregates subject to clinging or subject to attachment. He says, in brief, it's these five aggregates subject to attachment, which are dukkha. But how often, even with those aspects that are quite ordinary, that we can easily recognize, how often do we really stop and reflect deeply on them as being expressions of this first noble truth? The first challenge as we learn to apply the teachings is understanding what the Pali word dukkha means. And the Buddha repeated it many times in those few lines. This is dukkha, this is dukkha, this is dukkha. But dukkha is a Pali word. And so what actually does it mean? In many ways, this one term defines the entire spiritual path. Because when the Buddha was asked, as he was many times, what exactly it was that he was teaching, he would often reply, I teach just one thing, dukkha and its end. So if we really want to understand the path that we're on, it's essential that we have a comprehensive understanding of what this term means, if we're working so hard to end it. The problem is that there is no one single word in English that fully captures its meaning. You know, as you know, very commonly, dukkha is translated as suffering. And although in some contexts, 
this translation works well. It's not a perfect fit. Now, one teaching the Buddha said, whatever is felt is included in dukkha. But as we know, some feelings are pleasant. <clears throat> some feelings are enjoyable. We don't feel them as suffering at all. And so suffering doesn't, doesn't really resonate with us. And saying that all things are suffering because of their changing nature <clears throat> also does not correspond to our experience. You know, when you're sitting with pain, and it's getting worse and worse and worse, and you're sitting with the pain, and then all of a sudden the pain leaves and it becomes pleasant, is that change suffering? Probably not. It's probably felt as a huge relief. So while the term suffering as this often used translation of dukkha, might sometimes be appropriate, it can also be misleading. It doesn't always resonate with our own lived experience. So it can be helpful to look at this word, this Pali word, etymologically. You know, it's made up of a prefix and a root, the prefix du, and the root ka. And the prefix do means bad or difficult. And the root ka means empty. And empty here refers to several things, some very specific, some more generalized. And uh, Venerable Analyo, in his book on Satipatthana, uh, I guess he did quite a bit of research on this etymology, and had a very interesting description you know, in, in a very particular meaning. He said, one of the specific meanings of ka, empty, is that it refers to the empty axle hole of a wheel. You know, in the center of a wheel, in like in an ox cart or some kind of cart, in the center of the wheel, there's a hole that the axle fits in. So dukkha means a bad fit of the axle in the axle hole. What happens if you're riding in something where there's a bad fit? It's a very bumpy ride. And this is a good analogy for our ride through samsara. The first time I went to Burma, there was a group of us went, and this time it wasn't to practice, we went to visit some monasteries, pay our respects to the Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw, uh, who was kind of the grandfather of this tradition. And at the time we arrived in Burma, he wasn't in the Rangoon Monastery, he was in his home monastery, uh, way up country, like some hours outside of Mandalay. So we flew to Mandalay and then took a bus someplace, and then at the end of the bus we had to take an ox cart out to the monastery. It was a couple of hours in this ox cart. And I had never really experienced what it means to have something fit badly into an axle hole. <laughs> but it was an incredibly bumpy, jolting ride on this ox cart. So it was a very visceral experience of dukkha, a bad fit. And just as a little sidebar, it was going to visit that monastery, it was like going back in time. It was way out, you know, in, in upper Burma in the country. It was like going back centuries. And it was just so peaceful and unmodern, you know. No. And that's where the first idea came for what the group of us, we, we started calling, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a lay monastery? You know, it's like we weren't quite ready to join the monastic order, but the setting was so peaceful and so beautiful. And wouldn't it be great to have a place where lay people could come and practice like that? And that was really the beginning of what ended up as the forest refuge. So it really started in that monastery. Okay, so one meaning of dukkha is that bad fit of the axle. But in more general philosophic terms, empty Dukkha. Empty means devoid of permanence. 
and empty of a self that can control or command experience. And so here we come to understand some different translations of the word dukkha. And we take this more comprehensive meaning. And we understand the impermanent, insubstantial, empty of self nature of things. Then we see that dukkha is better translated as unsatisfying or unreliable things that are changing and empty of self, unsatisfying, unreliable, stressful, uneaseful. So Venerable Analio, he draws a very critical distinction in our understanding of these terms. And it's a very important one in terms of us understanding what we're actually doing here in the practice. He wrote, thus suffering, unlike unsatisfactoriness or unreliability, is not inherent in the phenomena in the world of the world, only in the way in which the unawakened mind experiences them. This is indeed the underlying theme of the Four Noble Truths as a whole. The suffering caused by attachment and craving can be overcome by awakening. For an arhant, the unsatisfactory nature of all conditioned phenomena is no longer capable of causing suffering. So this is very important because now we can begin to integrate the understanding that all conditioned phenomena, as the Buddha said, all conditioned phenomena are dukkha for everybody, whether one is a whirling or an arhant, conditioned phenomena are dukkha. That is unsatisfying, unreliable, incapable of giving lasting satisfaction. But with this understanding, we can indeed bring the suffering of our minds in relation to this unsatisfying nature of conditioned phenomena. We bring the suffering in our minds to an end. So what's important to remember as we hear these teachings is that the Buddha was not interested in simply constructing an elegant philosophical description of the world. And that was not his motivation. Rather, the teachings, all of the teachings, are an exhortation to us to look very directly at our lives so that we can investigate and know and see for ourselves how we actually experience this body, this mind, this world. There's a line from the Satipatthana Sutta which reminds us of this, where it says, one abides contemplating dharmas. Hear the first noble truth. Internally, externally, and both. So we contemplate. We contemplate the dharma of dukkha. Internally, what does it mean? Externally, what does it mean? And both. So we experience, when we look at our lives, we see we experience the unsatisfying, unreliable, and sometimes suffering nature of things in three ways. First, there is the dukkha of experience that is painful in itself. So this is often called dukkha dukkha. It's just, yeah, painful things. And this is where the translation of dukkha as suffering <coughs> is most apt. You know, it includes the suffering caused by war, by violence, by hunger, by natural disasters, by society, societal suffering of <coughs> injustice or oppression. Now, this kind of dukkha, this kind of suffering is very real for hundreds of millions of people. This is not like just little 
some little minority experience. Just recently, you know, in seeing the images of the earthquake in Haiti, and also I had some friends who went down there to help and came back and talked about it and had their own pictures. It just brought home kind of the essential vulnerability of our bodies, you know, and the uncertainty of our lives. You know, here people were just going about their business in this huge natural disaster, and the dukkha, the pain, the suffering, you know, that affected so many people in, in horrendous ways. There's also the inevitable pain of the body, just as it's subject to injury, you know, and sickness in old age. I mean, this is common to us all. We don't have to be in a special place where there's an earthquake. And most likely, we won't feel too great at the time of our death. I mean, we never quite know how it's going to happen, but I would say probably most people, it's a time of some physical suffering at the very least. All of this is just nature at work. It's not like it's a mistake and it's not like it happens to some and not to others. This is just nature. This is, this is how things are. And it's what the Buddha was referring to in part when he said all conditioned things are dukkha. There's also the optional but deeply habituated suffering of the mind, the dukkha dukkha of the mind. You know, all those painful states of fear and jealousy and anger and hatred and anxiety and guilt and grief and envy and frustration and loneliness. I mean, there's a long, long list of afflictive emotions. And it's interesting that and the Buddha said, when you compare the suffering of the mind with the suffering of the, bo- of the body, the suffering of the mind, he said, is much worse. And you've probably had this experience, you know, when there's pain in the body, with some degree of practice, it's not that hard to get a little distance from it, and just to be aware and to be watching. But when we are caught in the suffering of the mind, you know, in these afflictive emotions, before we've really developed the skill to be mindful of them, it's like all enveloping. We're just lost in these clouds of suffering. And many times in reporting these states, uh, you know, on retreat to Saira Upandita, come in and just report, oh, there's so much whatever, you know, anger or aversion or loneliness or frustration. And he just smiles and says, good practice. Now you are experiencing the truth of dukkha. You know, he was so happy. <laughs> so each time we can be open to and be mindful of these experiences, which are painful in themselves, they are unpleasant, they are suffering in themselves, we are investigating and realizing for ourselves the first noble truth. It's, it's helpful to put it in that context because more usually, you know, we go through some period of suffering and we don't put it in the larger context. Yes, this is dukkha. We just either are totally lost in it or reactive to it or want to get rid of it as quickly as possible. And we're not appreciating what we can learn about the nature of this mind and body. We're seeing something very real in those moments. So we want to be open to it and mindful and have interest. Now, as it says in this first discourse, uh, later on it goes goes on to say about the first noble truth, this is the noble truth of suffering which should be fully understood. So that's our task. We need to understand it. The second way we experience dukkha, the unsatisfying, unreliable nature of things, is through the direct and increasingly refined perception of the changing nature of all phenomena. 
There's one line that we read very often in the texts. And people would hear this one line, and many people would get enlightened. So here's your chance. And it's very simple. Uh, This is very simple. So it doesn't need thinking about. It just needs, yes. (laughs) That whatever has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. What has the nature to arise? Everything. Everything we're experiencing through the senses and through the mind door. Everything that has the nature to arise will also pass away. But because this statement is so glaringly obvious, we often ignore or overlook its deep implications. And we could tell anybody that, yeah, whatever has the nature to arise, pass away. Oh, yeah, I know that. And we just, we just assume we understand it. But it's generally on quite a superficial level. We understand it conceptually, but somehow we haven't fully grokked it, integrated it into how we live our lives. Although we may not always feel this incessant flow of phenomena, this changing flow as suffering, we come to realize that nothing in it can be counted on to give a lasting fulfillment. Nothing we experience can give us a lasting fulfillment. Why? Because nothing lasts. It seems so straightforward. But as we're engaged in our lives and we're making different choices about what we do in our lives, do we really reflect on this truth? The truth of change inevitably will lead us to times of association with what we don't want. It's inevitable. Pleasant, will eventually always turn into unpleasant and the reverse. It just all keeps changing and revolving. So we will inevitably face times of association with what we don't want, what we don't like. And inevitably there'll be separation from what we do want and what we do like. But when there's not mindfulness and a deep appreciation of the truth of this, then these situations, being with what we don't like, separated from what we do like, it usually conditions resistance to what's unpleasant, trying to hold on to what's pleasant. And this resistance and attachment simply conditions more suffering. It's not a good strategy. Again, on the conceptual level, we can understand this quite easily. But how often as we live our lives are we waiting in eager anticipation for the next pleasant hit? You know, in our lives, it might be the next pleasant hit of sense experience. Here, it might be the next pleasant hit of a calm, concentrated sitting. Even though when we look back on our lives, we see the dreamlike, ephemeral nature of all the many pleasant things we've already experienced. You know, we look back, yeah, there were many, many pleasant, but... Where are they now? But somehow when we look ahead, we get all excited about the next possible experience of something pleasant. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't enjoy ourselves when pleasant things come. It's just to realize the very transitory nature of them the very transitory nature of that happiness, and to deeply consider what our highest aspirations are. 
Now there are some powerful reflections and reminders of this for us that we can really use in our lives. Because all of this is really not hard to understand. It's hard to remember. So one reflection, which is worth keeping in mind often, is that all times of being together will inevitably end in separation. So all of our relationships, whether friends or more intimate relations, whatever kind of relationships we have, and no matter how attached we are, all will inevitably at one point or another end in separation. This simple but very profound truth points to the critical but often unexamined distinction between love and attachment. Now, love is a generosity of the heart. It's truly wanting the other person's happiness. And one of the best, really beautiful descriptions of this feeling of love, of metta, was written by the French essayist, essayist Montaigne He wrote, in a truly loving relationship, he was talking about a friend of his, a a dear, dear friend. In a truly loving relationship, which I have experienced, rather than drawing the one I love to me, I give myself to him. Not merely do I prefer to do him good rather than have him do good to me. I would even prefer that he do good to himself than to me. It is when he does good to himself that he does most good to me. If his absence is either pleasant or useful to him, then it delights me far more than his presence. I find that quite a statement of the nature of a loving relationship. I mean, how many of our intimate relationships rest on this foundation? If his absence is either pleasant or useful to him, then it delights me far more than his presence. It's concerned about the welfare of the other, not about our own, and that's what brings us happiness. Though it's quite remarkable. Attachment, on the other hand, is exactly the opposite. It's a holding, it's a grasping, it's a wanting for oneself. And while love can be enhanced in the awareness of change, Attachment in the face of change only and inevitably brings suffering. If we're holding on to that which in its nature changes, the more tightly we hold on, the more we suffer when it does. So it's really helpful to remember that attachment doesn't add anything at all to love. But this is not often examined or looked at. So we can reflect on the implications that all times of being together will inevitably end in separation. We can reflect that all accumulation ends in dispersion. All life ends in death. These are not morbid reflections. They are simply statements of what is true. And somewhat paradoxically, a deepening understanding of dukkha, seeing things as they are, brings a greater freshness and clarity of vision. The more we see the truth, this first noble truth of dukkha, It's like we're coming out of the grip of enchantment. We're waking up from being enchanted. And the more we align ourselves with what's true, the happier and more peaceful we are.
So just one other example of this. This is uh, something I've mentioned for many years now in different talks, but it's such an inspiring example of just how this alignment with what is true, understanding the truth of dukkha, actually brings happiness. And it's a description of uh, Henry David Thoreau when he was dying, and he was dying of TB, and tremendous physical pain. But this was uh, somebody who knew him writing about it, said Henry was never affected, never reached by his illness. Very often I heard him tell his visitors that he enjoyed existence as well as ever. Now, I don't know whether you're familiar with the advanced stages of TB, but pretty bad. You know, he enjoyed existence as well as ever. He remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health, the mind always conforming to the condition of the body. The thought of death, he said, could not begin to trouble him. One friend, as if way by consolation, said, well, Mr. Thoreau, we must all go. And Henry replied, when I was a very little boy, I learned that I must die. So, of course, I am not disappointed now. Death is as near to you as it is to me. So it's remarkable, you know, that, that quality of understanding just nature. He was a great naturalist. <laughs> he understood nature. You know, and... So this is what it means to open to the first noble truth of dukkha. This is, this is the nature of things. And as we align ourselves with it, it's a huge relief. The mind always conforming to the condition of the body. So there's the dukkha of things painful in themselves. There's the dukkha meaning the unreliability of things constantly changing. The last kind of dukkha is called Sankara dukkha, and this means the dukkha just of all conditioned states. And we can experience this in a variety of ways, but in the most mundane way, the most ordinary way, we can get a sense what this kind of dukkha means, when we consider the effort needed just to fulfill the basic requisites of life, to fill the basic needs of life. And we need to work for food, for water, for shelter, for medicine. And sometimes these things are easily obtained, and when they are, experiences as simple as opening the tap and having hot and cold water come out of it, This can really become the cause of tremendous gratitude when we realize that for hundreds of millions of people, I mean, a huge number of people, these very simple basic things which we so take for granted are not easily available at all. There's the effort we have to take care of the body, you know, keeping it clean, maintaining health as best we can. And then everything that's involved in that great instinctual drive to reproduce. A few years ago, I saw this amazing BBC film, uh, Planet Earth. And there was a whole big series. And part of it was some extraordinary filming of the tremendous effort some male birds made to attract a mate, and it showed these incredible, vigorous mating dances, you know, of these birds are doing incredible things, and sometimes, you know, these big, huge feather displays, and one, one species of birds, the, it was like a nest building contest, and the male that built the best nest, you know, got the mate, and it was so sad, because for many times, just these poor birds' efforts were not enough. <laughs> yeah. So we just want to see it. We want to kind of appreciate everything we need to do just to keep this whole thing going. 
But the deepest and most comprehensive meaning of dukkha, I mean, there's this very mundane, yeah, life just takes a lot of work to maintain. The deepest and most comprehensive meaning finds expression in the Buddhist summing up of this whole first noble truth when he said, in short, dukkha is the five aggregates subject to attachment, subject to clinging. So it's that brief little sentence that really contains the whole show. Contained in this one phrase, in brief, in short, dukkha is the five aggregates subject to clinging. Contained in this one phrase is the whole of samsara conditioning. This whole big wheel endlessly rolling wheel of samsara is contained in those few words. And by implication, in those same words, dukkha is the five aggregate subject to clinging. By implication, contained within that is the understanding of the remaining three noble truths that make liberation, freedom from dukkha possible. So you're probably all quite familiar with the teachings on the aggregates, where the Buddha analyzes just the basic components of each moment's experience, material elements, feelings, perceptions, formations, consciousness. For years, I read about these five aggregates. I mean, it's so kind. It's probably the most common teaching in the suttas. It's just... It's everywhere throughout the teachings you know, about these aggregates. But for such a long time, I would read about it, and my eyes would just glaze over you know, with the repetitions and the seemingly abstract nature of that particular formulation. But at a certain point, I thought, if the Buddha spoke so often about these five aggregates, Maybe he was speaking directly to me as well. And maybe there's something I should really investigate here and really look at the practical application of these teachings. And it was quite amazing because when I went from just kind of somewhat dismissing or gliding over them as as a simple abstract concept to really look at how can I experience them How can I experience what the Buddha is talking about here? It became very fascinating to really apply it in my moment-to-moment experience. You know, the material elements in terms of the actual physical sensations that we feel of heat and cold and pressure and vibration and tightness, softness. And again, although this seems so simple and straightforward, What I found, and we still continue to do this, very often we habitually overlay concepts on these sensations, and these concepts cloud our direct connection with this first aggregate of material elements. I'll just give you a couple of examples which came up in my practice. One time I had been in Burma for some time, and my practice was going pretty well. My whole body felt just this free flow of energy, and my mind was concentrated, and it's kind of going along quite smoothly. But there was this one place in my neck that was just so tight, and it just felt like an energy block. You know, the, the energy was flowing except for this one place. So I went and reported to Saito and told him about the kind of this free flow of energy in the body, but there was this one block. And, not surprisingly, he got on my case for calling it a block. Because already in that concept is desire and aversion. Block, no good, want to get rid of it, want it to go away. And I wasn't experiencing block, I was experiencing tightness. And so when he reminded, when he, when he pointed out, hey, this is just a conceptual overlay, 
then I could come back and just be with all the nuances and the changing nature of the tightness itself. I relaxed into the direct experience of that aggregate. But this conceptual overlay comes very quickly. At another time, more recently with Saido, I was sitting and again, things were, seemed to be going well and I was feeling just tremendous lightness in my body. So I go in and this, this was really a mistake. So I go in and give my, I said, Saido, it feels like I'm on a magic carpet, just flying in the air. He just, he just shook his head and he said, have you ever been on a magic carpet? <laughs> he was not interested in interpretation at all. I mean, all of his empathy. What is your actual experience? You know, and that brings us in touch with the aggregates. So we want to be careful you know, and look to see whether you're overlaying something. The second aggregate of feelings, you know, we understand it's just the taste of the object in terms of is it pleasant, is it unpleasant, is it neutral. Perceptions are the conceptual recognition of what's happening. You know, we see a color and we, oh, that's blue, we recognize it as blue, or a sound we recognize as a bird. Formation of all the other mental factors, you know, of how we're relating to the object. You know, all the emotions are in this aggregate of formations, all the mind states, is the mind dull or uh, alert? You know, is it concentrated? Is it distracted? Intention is included in this aggregate of formations. So it's all, all the qualities or factors of mind. Of course, the fifth aggregate is consciousness, just the knowing, the simple unadorned knowing of the experience. So one way of moving from a conceptual appreciation of these teachings to a transformative realization, to really using this formulation of the aggregates in a way that transforms our understanding and opens the door to a deeper understanding of this first noble truth of dukkha, is to notice and you might do this in your practice, you know, if it interests you from time to time. Take a period of time where as you're going along, whether it's sitting or moving about, where you're really recognizing in each moment which of the aggregates is most predominant in that moment. They're all always there. They arise together, so you can't separate them. But at different moments, one or another may be predominant. On my last retreat, I was sitting at home. It was in the middle of winter here. And I'd often be doing walking outside. And there were days that were just freezing cold, you know, with an icy wind. And the felt, the felt experience was so intense that it became interesting to me. Just, okay, what is the nature of this experience? It just aroused the investigation factor, the very intensity of it. And there was the experience just of the intense cold, which were the physical sensations, very unpleasant, which were feelings. You know, sometimes maybe a car would go by and I'd recognize it a car, which was a perception. And back to the sensations, back to the unpleasant feelings. Sometimes I'd settle just into the the knowing, you know, it settled back and just knowing it all. So this was experience of consciousness, the fifth aggregate. And then at times I'd be noticing all my mental reactions, you know, the aversion or the equanimity <coughs> or the interest. These are formations. Now what was really interesting and in just this little, <coughs> this little happening in the circumstances, it really illuminated something. Sometimes I'd be walking with the wind at my back and facing the sun. So I had been walking into the wind, this icy, bitter cold, all of these sensations, all of the aggregates manifesting those experiences. And I turned around, the wind at my back facing the sun. Oh, pleasant, very, very pleasant. You know? And it became so clear in just watching in this careful way 
The different aggregates were simply coming and going according to changing conditions. Nothing belonged to me, and there was no me to whom they could belong. All of experience was just being described by the arising and passing and changing of these five aggregates. And simply noticing that was so illuminating. I understood again, and we, we need to understand it many, many times, the burdensomeness of relying on or clinging to any of these aggregates. They're all so insubstantial and so impermanent. So what, what are we doing in our lives when we're you know, building our life, hoping to rely on one or more of these aggregates? When we see how they're working and that they really describe the totality of our experience, clinging or attachment to them or relying on them just doesn't make any sense. So <clears throat> this is from <clears throat> the Samyutta Nikaya teaching of the Buddha. Suppose bhikkhus, a dog tied up on a leash, was bound to a strong post or pillar. It would just keep on running and revolving around that same post or pillar. So too, the uninstructed worldling, uninstructed worldlings regard form as self, feeling as self, perception, volitional formations, consciousness as, as self. They just keep running and revolving around form, feelings, perception, formations, consciousness. As they keep on running and revolving around them, they are not freed from them. They are not freed from birth, aging, and death, not freed from sorrow and lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, not freed from suffering. But the instructed noble disciple, disciples do not regard form as self, nor feeling, nor perception, nor formations, nor consciousness itself. They no longer keep running and revolving around them. As they no longer keep running around them, they are freed. Freed from them, freed from birth, aging, and death. Freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. Freed from suffering. <laughs> I love that image because the image of the dog just running around the post. And then seeing these five aggregates, you know, as that post, are we just running around them in our lives, you know, attached to them, clinging to them? And to see, I mean, it's right in our understanding of the aggregate subject to attachment, we really do understand this first noble truth of suffering. So in our meditation practice and in our lives, we, need to, we really need to reflect on and investigate this first noble truth. Is our understanding of dukkha limited <coughs> to just what is obviously unpleasant? I mean, now we can easily recognize, yes, that's dukkha. Or can we begin to get a sense of what the Buddha meant <coughs> when he said that all conditioned phenomena are dukkha. There's a very well-known British Buddhist scholar, his name is Gethin. He wrote, understanding the first noble truth involves not so much the realization that dukkha exists as the realization of what dukkha is. And I find that that's a very good expression of the challenge to us. You know, we can recognize, yes, dukkha exists, but we need to realize, what exactly is it? So the Buddha concluded this teaching on the first noble truth with this recounting of his night under the Bodhi tree. <clears throat> Just imagine, you know, the Buddha, all those years of striving and practice, the night of his awakening, his coming to realization. So this, again, is from this first sutta. This is what he realized. This is the noble truth of dukkha. Thus, O bhikkhus, concerning things not heard before, 
there arose in me the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight, and the light. This is the noble truth of dukkha, which should be fully understood. Thus, O bhikkhus, concerning things not heard before, there arose in me the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight, and the light. And then this is the noble truth of dukkha, which has been understood. So first he recognizes the truth. He recognizes that it needs to be understood. And he has seen in himself that it has been understood. Thus, O bhikkhus, concerning things not heard before, there arose in me the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight, and the light. So we practice, and this is our practice, we practice understanding it, realizing it, until at some point when the realization has been brought to completion, you know, we can give voice to that great song of awakening, which I just, it so inspires me that I have it as a kind of paperweight on my desk. <laughs> Somebody gave this to me, the inscription, done is what had to be done. You know, that's, that's often the phrase that people uttered in the moment of their full awakening. And it's such an inspiring, just think of that moment when we'll be able to say, done is what had to be done. Great moment. And it comes, as, as the Buddha said in this discourse, through the full understanding of this first noble truth. So let's sit for a couple of moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.